Good morning. I'll try that again. Good morning. This morning's Bible reading comes from Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide our soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive every mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant or are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes the honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because he was because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be the High Priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Church. My name is Ash. Seniors here, very welcome. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, if you've joined us today, you've joined us. Start of uh, last week was the start of a uh, five week series thinking about um, our vision as a church as we plan for the next uh, four or five years of our church life. And it seems strange as I said to do that in the midst of a pandemic, but you know, there's seasons and um, we live knowing that this season is one of them, but there's many to come after. And the challenge for us is to, um, to, to think of life uh, with a broader, broader perspective. I'm going to pray for us now to reflect on that word, um, which was just read to us by Hattie, and think about how that applies to us. But, kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you apply it to our hearts and minds this morning. 
May he us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray this morning. Amen. Can I just say, it is bizarre looking at your camera. <laughs> uh, so if it feels weird for you, it feels a bit weird for me. Now, as we start, I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes. I'm just going to read something for you, and I want you to imagine this. Um, this is perhaps a picture of what, I guess, the actual could look like in five years' time. Imagine when you come to St. Stephen's in five years, we're a church that has a wide cross-section of people, from young families, to university students, to young adults, to long-term members. People from different migrant backgrounds who've moved to Australia. We're a place filled with people who have never been to church before. Imagine a church where young families are from present grandmothers. Imagine a church where the vast majority of people Enriched by God's word. Imagine a church where more and more people, more backgrounds and stages come. A church that's known for its generosity to the community in small, personal ways. Less as an institution and more through hundreds and hundreds of connections to families and individuals in the area. Imagine a church where when I introduce myself to someone as a person sisters, that a story of a congregation in the us. Can you imagine a church where our younger congregation members Connections to ancient truths that have been communicated in relevant and modern ways. A church has played a significant role in nurturing them through the difficult post COVID 19 years by financially supporting them, emotionally supporting them, and spiritually guiding them. Can you imagine a church that has a pack of young teenagers serving, graduating into missionary, choosing to settle close enough, remaining connected? A church with two or three generations of people. Can you imagine a church with hundreds of people who come here every week? A church that's planting a fourth and a fifth service. Can you imagine a church filled with new believers, Oregon people who lived in Willoughby for many years, only to find Jesus Christ as the true source of hope and salvation? Can you imagine that? More importantly, Jack, a question for you. How did you respond to that? How did you respond to that vision? Uh, perhaps you're an early adopter, and so you think, yes, love it, on board, what next, tell me what to do. Or perhaps, more likely, behind that mask, you were really smirking, thinking, ah, there's another young senior minister who's coming. I suspect the AA has thought this more. They've seen a few of this come and go over time. Oh, he's got a, he's got a broad vision, hasn't he? Good on him. But part of you is cynical. Maybe you're cynical because you've actually, you've done this all before. You've had the vision cast. Uh, you've, you've, you've been part of St. Stephen's that's tried lots of things. I'm, of course, not the first senior minister to turn up and say we should try stuff. You've tried a lot of things. You've seen some high points, but you've also seen some low points of ministry life and church life. And so when you hear me say something, Deep down, maybe you're a bit You know, what strikes me, I went through our connect groups um, over the course of the last four or five months, and actually what struck me is people who would love to see some of those things happen in our church life. But I'm actually, I think the word is defeated. They have a sense that we have tried things and they haven't worked. They're not cynical, but they are probably pessimistic. 
Now, if you're in that second group, I'm going to start with you this morning. And I want to challenge you, I want to challenge us, that actually God wants us to be genuinely optimistic about the work of God, working in the world. He wants us, in fact, I'd say, to be confident. He wants us to cast aside our cynicism. He wants us to put aside our inclination to be defeated by past experiences and to take hold of bold visions uh, of what God can do in his church. To think about that, I want to reflect on that passage that we saw in Philippians 4, because in Philippians 4, in Hebrews 4, because that passage, that passage is an invitation, actually. It's an invitation for us to have a very high view of God. It says, God's word it penetrates to the dividing soul and spirit. Says God, by inference, because it's His Word, can actually get to the things that we can't get to. I mean, we think, is there a difference between soul and spirit? And even how do you understand someone's soul? It says God can understand. It can penetrate to the impenetrable. This is a powerful word, and by inference, God Himself is powerful. And then He says, goes on. He says, nothing. Verse thirteen. In all creation is hidden from God's sight. This is an extraordinarily high view of God. God, you know, when you think about the world, at the moment you open the papers and every week there's a, there's a new article about some kind of discovery to do with coronavirus. People are longing for good news, right? Some scientist has worked out something about this. But there is nothing about this virus that God doesn't know already. You think about the deepest oceans, you know that there's parts of our ocean which we still do not know anything about. But of course, God knows it all. He has seen it. He is God who sees everything. There is nothing hidden, says the Bible. And He is God who can penetrate into the impenetrable. He is God who has the ability to, to separate soul and spirit, to find a difference between the things that we cannot even discern. His word is powerful and active. And it brings about changes the right of Hebrews. And starting from that high view, at the, at the end of that little section, verse 16, great verse, it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. He says, knowing that God is big, let us come to God with confidence. In fact, the word could be boldness or even a sense of presumption. Let us come to God with confidence. God is big, so therefore let us come to him with big requests, with presumptuous requests, with confidence. Let us come to him with boldness. Now actually, if you look through the Bible, you see numerous examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament of where God, people who have encountered God in all of his majesty and all of his glory, don't shirk back, they don't shrink back from that moment. They step up and they ask for ridiculous things. Here's a couple of examples. So first of all, Genesis 32. Someone says, the Lord bless me. Do you know who that was? That was Jacob. He's been wrestling with God in, at night in the desert. He has encountered God in all his strength. He cannot overcome God. And then, having encountered the majesty of God, what does he say? He says the most extraordinary thing. He says, Lord bless me. And in Exodus 33, show me your glory. Do you know who that was? That was Moses. Moses was just told, only you can go on the mountain. He's entered the holiness of God 
And he makes that most extraordinary request on top of having already received the Lord, show me your glory. Matthew 8, make me clean. That's a letter to Jesus. He's the man who lives in a culture shaped by the Old Testament, which says because he's a leper, he cannot encounter people. He's meant to be separate. And yet now, having seen everything Jesus can do, he has the boldness to approach Jesus and say, make me clean. James says in his letter, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We read that God's word is powerful and effective. We read that God's word is the capacity to do it. And James says, guess what? You can pray a powerful prayer. You can pray a powerful prayer. I guess you'd summarise it like this. God is big, therefore we should pray big prayers. And for St Stephen's, we kind of laid down a foundation last week and we said, God's primary purpose of his church and his people is to be captivated by Jesus. And now I'm going to spend this week and the next three weeks thinking about four things that I think we need to focus on as a church. And the first one is this, praying. Praying big prayers shaped by the gospel. This is what we need to do. We need to hear the encouragement of Hebrews. We need to hear the encouragement of Scripture and the examples of God's people and say we are called to pray big prayers shaped by the gospel. That's the starting point. Anything else that we want to see happen must start with this. We must be people who pray big prayers shaped by the gospel. Now, what's interesting is when I started here, a lot of people said to me about 8 a.m., they said, oh, the 8 a.m. congregation is our praying congregation. They do the praying for us. They can't run a lot of the ministries, but they're great prayers. But you see, the challenge of Hebrews 4 is not that we delegate off prayer to other people. We can think of, sometimes we can fall in the habit of thinking that certain people are particularly equipped to pray because they, of course, can't run the crazy youth group event. Uh, they, maybe can't, they maybe can't get up and preach, but they can sit quietly and pray. But the principle that Hebrews is unpacking is that God is big and therefore we pray big prayers. Not, I have been gifted to pray big prayers, therefore I'm the person who prays the big prayer, but God is big. Universal principle applicable to every single person, and therefore every single person is called to pray big prayers, to pray with confidence, to pray with boldness. Now what's interesting is we could create a whole range of ministries, but what we actually need to do is we need to embed this principle in everything that we do. We need to be people, we need to be a church shaped by a vision of a big God who prays big prayers, shaped by the gospel. Praying big prayers shaped by the gospel. If we don't do anything else, this is where we have to start. And this is what each of us actually needs to commit to. I think we do have a tendency sometimes, as I said, of, of marking out certain people to do certain things. Well, that's fine in a lot of areas, but not when it comes to prayer. Because prayer is a response to God. Not conditioned by ourselves first and foremost, but conditioned by who God is. God is big, so we pray big prayers. Now, there's something that's going to stop us from praying big prayers. And sometimes it's not a lack of confidence. Sometimes it's actually confidence in the wrong things. So some of us, some of us won't pray those big prayers because we feel defeated. And to you, I'm saying, no, no, don't look at yourself. Don't look at your circumstance. Look at God and pray those prayers. Other people are going to fail to pray big prayers 
because their confidence is actually somewhere else. Do you see what the writer says in verse 13? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Big view of God. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him. In other words, everything is naked before God. It's a, it's a low view of us, actually, isn't it? Big view of God, low view of us. Um, I think praying has got to be one of our, our, kind of our first priority, our first missional focus, in a sense, because praying is what stops us from being self-sufficient. Praying is the thing that testifies against our self-sufficiency. And that's where we have to start. I remember I played cricket at UTS Balmain, and that's, like a, that's a great team in Sydney Comp. And in great teams, what happens sometimes is uh, you get uh, like an Australian cricketer or a New South Wales cricketer come back and play. They have a couple of weeks where you know their, their timetables don't line up and they've got a gap. And so they come back to their great team. And when I was playing there, there was a guy called Jason Crazier who was playing for Australia at the time. You won't. Might not remember him, he played like two or three tests. Uh, and he took, he took 10 wickets in India and got hammered around the park by the Indian cricketers. But uh, he came, he came, side, side. He, uh, he came back to the, to the training one Thursday night. I was an off spinner, he's an off spinner, and there he was bowling in the nets next to me. The Australian test off spinner bowling. Is, I thought this is not machine too good to be missed. I did not give up my spot in that net for the whole night. I just bowled and bowled and bowled. And then I went home and I realised something. You fool. <laughs> I spent two hours bowling next to the Australian Test off-spinner. And I never, not for one moment, stopped and asked him for any advice. <laughs> you know, sometimes we treat God like that. Well, a lot of the time we actually treat God like that. We think, actually, our job is to take control of the situation and to impress him. But we are laid bare. In fact, the word is naked. We are naked. We are small. God is big. That's the dynamic in this passage. That's the dynamic in life. And our task, our task is not to take control and impress God, but to recognise the dynamic that exists, that God is being, we are small, that we are laid bare, that we are naked, that we are uncovered. Now, nakedness itself is not a bad thing. It's actually not a bad thing. It's just who we are. And in Genesis 1, when God creates humankind, he creates them, male and female, and they're naked. And there's nothing good. In fact, it's very good. There's nothing bad about that at all. Nakedness is fine. Being who we are is fine. It's good. It's very good. Of course, the problem, the problem takes place in Genesis 3, doesn't it? When Adam and Eve, who are naked, choose to take control of that moment, don't they? If you know the story, they eat the fruit from the tree. But eating the fruit, of course, is not the problem. Eating the fruit is a reflection of them wanting to sideline God themselves at the centre to take control of their situation, to be self-sufficient, to be autonomous. And it is at that moment when their nakedness and their self-sufficiency meet that their terminal condition comes about, isn't it? It's then when, despite being low and naked, being small in comparison to their great God, they choose to shift him out of the boat and take centre stage. 
And what happens, of course, is a terrible story. Because the moment that naked people, so to speak, become self-sufficient, they become fearful people. Soon after the event, God is walking in the garden looking for them. And they hide, don't they? In fact, Adam says to God, we heard you, we realised we were naked, so we hid. That's what happens when our nakedness, so to speak, our smallness, seeks to be self-sufficient. Seeks to be self-sufficient. And worse still, it's not just that we're afraid. I mean, we live in a world that's afraid, and so much of our fear is because we deny this reality to try and be self-sufficient. But worse than fear is isolation. Because ultimately, Adam and Eve get pushed out of the garden, out of that extraordinary place of intimacy with God, of intimacy. And see, that is exactly why praying has got to be the starting point of God's church. Whenever they think about where they're going and what they're doing, because praying speaks against our tendency to self-sufficiency. Praying is the activity of people who are not self-sufficient, but realise that they're ultimately dependent on God. Now, of course, you can still pray and be self-sufficient. You can still pray and try to take control. You can pray prayers which ultimately are not prayers of dependence, but prayers which seek to use God for your own purposes. And so actually our prayers, as bold as they're meant to be, as confident as they're meant to be, are meant to be prayers that are not shaped around us, but shaped around Him. Shaped around His will, His purposes, and His plan. And that's the constant challenge. You see, you can be someone who prays a lot, but when you reflect on the content of your prayer, it really is just about building yourself up, or building your family up. Or building your children up. And that is not the kind of prayer, that's not the kind of prayer that recognises this dynamic at the heart of the Bible, which says that God is big, we are small, and we are ultimately dependent on Him. See, when you just seek to use God in our when we seek to use God in our prayers, simply to achieve our own ends, we're still trying to remain in control of the situation. That is not praying the kind of prayers that the Bible has called us to pray. So, of course, the question is, how do we pray those kind of prayers? How do we pray those kind of prayers which are confident and bold? Well, what is interesting in the passages in verses 12 and 13, we have this dynamic established between us and God. And verse 16 is a verse which says, let us approach God with confidence. But how do we shape and and mould our prayers so they have the appropriate kind of confidence? Well, we see that in verse 14, where we're introduced to Jesus. Because actually, the way to approach God with the right kind of boldness and confidence is to approach Him in prayer, shaped and moulded by the Gospel, and Jesus Christ is at the centre of it. You see, the deeper that you know Jesus Christ, the deeper that you believe Him and believe in Him, and the deeper that your prayers are shaped by Him, the more your prayers will be bold the right way, the more we will pray regularly, consistently, confidently, not to seek to take control, but to hand our lives over to you. And there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful image, you see. There's a beautiful image in that verse, verse 16. He says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. The throne of grace. 
If you take nothing out of this morning, take this when you shape your prayers, shape them around that extraordinary vision of a throne of grace. That vision, that understanding, informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done, is what will bring your prayer life, our prayer life, to life, so to speak. It's what will give it true confidence, true boldness, and true shame. It is a throne. Jesus really does sit on a throne. In fact, the writer says in verse 14, Jesus has passed through the heavens. Through the heavens. Not into heaven, but through the heavens. His point is that Jesus is not on the same level as the angels. He is not another supernatural being with supernatural power. He sits above them. He sits in a throne that is not the product of human imagination or conception. Jesus sits in a throne room beyond our imagination. With such power, such authority, because of course he is the resurrected king who has destroyed the one power which holds over all of us, which is death. Jesus Christ is above all others. And so when we come to him, we don't come to any throne room that we could have considered ourselves. We come to one who is more powerful than we can ever imagine, more glorious, more exalted. And, you know, when, you, when your prayer is shaped by that, how can you come to Jesus and say, Lord, my will be done? How can you say that? How can you come to that throne and pray like that? Lord, would you do this for me? Would you make me great? You can't do it. Because Jesus Christ sits on the throne. But one of the Hebrews' words are... Beautifully chosen. I mean, he could have said throne of splendor. He could have said throne of power. Throne of majesty. But he chooses very importantly a throne of grace. Because God's throne is unlike any other throne. That's his point. That's what it is. It is the second half of that phrase, of that image, which really fires our prayer life up. And which gives us that confidence and which draws us into the task of praying with boldness. It is a throne of grace. You know, the um, story of the last emperor of China is depicted in a, in a modern film, like late 80s. But the actual story of that emperor was that he was a particularly sadistic young man. He grew up as a very young kid, he was obviously sports ridiculously. And the stories are quite horrendous that, you know, often he would get his eunuchs and his slaves beaten. Just for no reason. One story goes that one day he's sitting on his throne and he had a priceless vase put in. And then he just smashed it. And instead of paying the penalty himself, he just got a slave to step forward and the slave was beaten instead. That's a throne of power. That is not a throne of grace. That's, that's some version of divine power, but it's not the divine power we find in the God of the Gospel. Of course, in God's Gospel, the prince steps down and is beaten for the slave. The prince steps down and becomes the slave. And Jesus Christ doesn't ascend to this throne through all the pomp and circumstance that we ascribe to, of self-assertion, Jesus doesn't ascend to his throne by being acclaimed and cheered. Jesus ascends to his throne through a prayer of submission. There is this beautiful stained glass window we serve here. It's my, one of my favourite parts in the building. 
wasn't, the pulpit wasn't actually on this side of the building when it was first built, it was over here. But it was moved here and then finished the end off. And I love that it's here because here is God's word, powerful and majestic, but right next to it is Jesus Christ on his knees praying these words that I will be done. The ultimate prayer, not of self-assertion, but of submission. And his eyes, if you walk past them as you go out, you'll see that they they carry a lot of pain in them. Because at that moment, he's about to bear the sin of the world. He's about to to wade wade back into that garden for all people who through their own self-assertion found a way out. That's how he gets to his throne. Through a cross. Through death and suffering. Through giving himself up. And he said, when you pray that prayer to that God, who's on his knees praying for you, you suddenly start to pray different prayers and expect different things. He said, because you know that when you pray to God, he will answer your prayers. He will answer them. He may not answer them the way you immediately think, but he'll answer them the way you would want him to answer them if you knew everything that he knew. See, when you pray to a God who is high and lifted up on the throne, but is a God of grace, you know that when you pray to him, he will answer you the way that you would want him to answer you if you knew everything that he knew. And you see, when you start to understand that about prayer, when you start to understand that that is how God will answer you, so trustworthy is his answer, it will draw you into prayer. You'll think, there is nothing more important for me to do than to pray. (laughs) Because God will answer it the way that we need him to answer it. That will fire the boldness in our prayer life. That will fire up the boldness in our prayer life. See, I said to you last week, I said to us, we need to be a church that's captivated by Jesus Christ and the gospel. And you can see how when you are captivated by Jesus, it affects everything you do. And it affects our starting point. And our starting point is to pray big prayers shaped by the gospel. We need to be a people who are praying big prayers shaped by the gospel. We'll go on to talk about bringing friends to faith. We'll go on to talk about growing people. We'll go on to talk about celebrating together. But the starting point has got to be this, that we commit to be people who are praying big prayers shaped by the gospel. Because the gospel gives us confidence that God will answer us the way we would want to if we knew everything we need. Now, when, we're not going to suddenly create a whole raft of ministries to help us pray. Because what that would do is it would just shift our prayer life into those spaces. Rather, what we need to do, commit to do, certainly for the next five years, I suggest this is the kind of priority that's not St. Stephen specific, but is gospel discipleship specific is that we need to do it indefinitely. But what we need to do is we need to take that commitment to be praying big prayers shaped by the gospel and put them in every ministry space. You know, whether you're on parish council or you lead half past six or you're a Sunday school teacher or you sit in a connect group, that space is the place to be praying big prayers. Whether you're you're an 8am-er or whether you are a parent That is the place to be praying big prayers. Our families need to be places where we teach our kids to pray big prayers shaped by the gospel. 
We need to pray big prayers for our workplaces. We need to pray big prayers for our community here and for our ministry and God's work in and through the people here. And here's the thing. If we pray those kind of prayers, it will change. It will change God's church. I read, I read recently that in, um, this is American stats, but I suspect they're true for us Australians, 85% of people in churches report that don't really pray during the week. 85% of people report that don't really pray during the week. I wonder if we can flip that stat in five years and say the people who come to church at St. Stephen's, 85% of them a rich, deep prayer life. They pray big prayers regularly in their life. Actually, you know, if you do that, it doesn't actually matter what I say for the next three weeks. God will do a great work. He will do a great work. Why is that? Not because we've done something, because we have gone to the one who does great things, big things, God himself. And we're entrusting our church to him. And so we'll see a transformation. And actually, it will surpass our vision. It will surpass our imagination. Because God will grant us more than we can ask for. So let us draw to him in prayer. Let me pray for us. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel which draws us to you. We thank you that in the gospel we get access to your throne, your throne of grace. Lord, we pray that you will use us, not for our own will, but for yours, that you would bring about big things for your glory, not for ours, and that you would instill in us deep confidence, not based on our own abilities, but on who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name.